0: Welcome back to Match Volume with Elle and Ella. We're your hosts, Ella Katz and Elle Davidson. So Ella, can you tell us a little bit about who is joining us on the pod this week? This week, our friend and fellow reporter, Caitlin Calfo, sat down with journalist Brandy Morin to discuss the genocide of Indigenous women and girls in Canada. Brandi is an award-winning journalist from Treaty 6, Alberta, Canada. Before we get into it, we do want to warn our listeners that the content in today's episode may be triggering for some as the conversation touches on themes of sexual violence, abuse, and racism. Here's Brandy Morin.
1: Thank you so much for being with us, Brandy. Um, Before we start, I'd love if you could tell our audience your name your pronouns, where you're talking to us from today, and a bit about your professional background.
2: Tanze, hello. This is Brandy Morn. I'm so excited to be here today. I uh, am from Treaty 6 in Alberta, Canada, from the Michelle First Nation. Um, I go by she and her. And um, I am a freelance journalist uh, specializing in uh, telling Indigenous stories, Uh, nationally here in Canada and internationally uh, around the world. I've been doing this work uh, full time for almost 10 years now.
1: I wanted you to talk to our audience about an overlooked genocide, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. I know you are from Canada, but this stretches even into my own backyard in Los Angeles. In 2016, there were 5,712 cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Yet only 116 of these cases were logged into the Department of Justice's database. Why are these women endangered and at such an alarming rate?
2: Yes, this is a a crisis across uh, North America of uh, violence against Indigenous women and girls. This has been ongoing uh, since... Uh, Europeans arrived on this continent. Um, It's uh, named a genocide by the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls here in Canada, a final report which was released in June of 2019. I believe that the reason why the numbers are so high There's so many different factors. There is the colonial violence. violence. There is racism um, that goes along with that. There is um, indifference um, and so many different uh, factors that make our women more vulnerable to violence. So a lot of our women and girls are recovering from, you know, or experiencing intergenerational trauma. So um, the trauma of colonialism, the trauma of Residential schools, which in the United States, I believe, are called boarding schools, where um, indigenous children were um, ripped from their homes and forced to attend uh, white-run schools, religious schools, in uh, an effort to assimilate them into the mainstream European culture. And um, the children endured horrific physical, verbal emotional sexual and spiritual abuse over many many decades Um, in fact a lot of indigenous children never even made it back home and these children were sent back out into the world when they were in their teen years or adult years and uh, we had generations of broken hurting uh, people and um, the, the effects of that um, are relayed in the generations of, you know, dysfunctions uh, and addictions. We had follow-ups from um, the residential school system um, that's still going on today. It's known here in Canada as the 60s scoop and what it uh, is, is, um, you know, child and uh, family services removing children from their families. And placing them into white homes again, displace, displacing uh, indigenous children and families. Um, these families are reeling and not really given a lot of resources, you know, to heal and having their identities completely stripped from them. So it it, it puts in place um, these high levels of you know adversity that puts our women in more you know vulnerable vulnerable positions of you know experiencing. Poverty, experiencing, you know, violence growing up and um, exposed and experiencing addictions that a lot of times puts them into those positions. But I believe that a reason why these uh, cases are outstanding and why this. Um, Targeting of our women continues to this day, is because there's been a dehumanizing of our women. So our women aren't valued. They were uh, considered and still considered, of you know, less than due to you know racial discrimination and other factors. And so when you dehumanize uh, somebody, it makes it it makes it okay for perpetrators to um, enact this type of violence on our women because society doesn't take it seriously. The authorities don't take it seriously and neither does our governments. Um, And so we have uh, cases of police here in Canada, not um, fully investigating or properly investigating um, when our women our girls are missing or uh, other murders. Uh, Oftentimes they are uh, labeled as, you know, just a, you know, a, a drunken Indian or a runaway, and um, the the care is not given um, to to finding them. Whereas in cases I've spoken to families, in cases where you know uh, non indigenous women go missing, white women go missing, there are full resources and attention given to those cases. So um, <clears throat> I believe that it's that it's it's. these type of uh, factors across the board, even, you know, south of the medicine line where you are, that a lot of these factors are, you know, our women are dehumanized, our women are not valued, they are um, vulnerable and, uh, you know, not taken seriously.
1: So I remember reading this really beautiful piece that you wrote in The Guardian about your own story as a missing Indigenous woman. Um, I was wondering if you felt comfortable. Could you please take us through your childhood and your upbringing in living in that community?
2: I'm actually writing a book. We're finishing the proposals with my agent to write a book about my experience as a survivor. So I've been going through a lot of this lately. Um, so, yes, I um, grew up in and out of the foster care system. I came from a pretty dysfunctional family and um My mother was very overwhelmed being a single mother. My father was an alcoholic. She decided to put me into foster care. By the time I, when I was 12 years old, I was living in a group home and hanging around a lot of um, other kids that were, you know, into a lot of bad things and were really, you know, street smart and things like that. And I was a very impressionable young girl. I was very vulnerable. I... um, Was wanting to belong. I, you know, was wanting love and acceptance. And I decided to run away one day with two other girls from my group home. And we were running away to go party and to get away from the rules and the regulations of this cold, you know, group home. So we ran away and they took me to an apartment building downtown Edmonton, Alberta, which is um, uh, Alberta's capital city. And um, I ended up uh, being raped there by older men. I was 12 years old, it's how I lost my virginity. And I was held there for approximately a week between there and another apartment. And I um, planned my escape and was able to get out of there. It. Uh, I ended up being raped by two different men. Um, I, um, it it was very, obviously very frightening, very horrifying. I had to put on an act though. I had to put on an act because I felt, um, afraid for my safety there, that if I were to, um, protest or, uh, something like that, that I would, um, you know, invite violence or even death. Uh, to myself. So I, I kind of pretended and went along with, with the people there and that I wanted to be there. And I was hiding in a room one day. I remember um, I was like in the corner of this room and I was 12 years old and thinking, I got to get out of here. How am I gonna get out of here? And I ended up finding a telephone and I snuck on the telephone. And I called my Kukum, which is grandmother in Cree. And I didn't tell her what was going on. I just asked her if I could come over. She kind of knew that I I think she may have known that I had run away from the group home. And she said, of course, you come over here, my girl. So I don't know. I, I believe that it was God or somebody that came and... um you know help me because I was doing a lot of praying to you know to get out of there and I convinced these men to let me go but I said to them I, I just want to go see my grandma I want I'm gonna come back I promise and I'm and I just fabricated a bunch of stuff up and made them believe that I wanted to be there and that I was going to come back and so I remember I it was winter time and I one of the men uh, took me in his car and it was it was at nighttime. It was dark, and I remember driving in this car with him across the city. And we we're going across this bridge that like goes over a big river that goes through the city. And he was um, taking out different knives that he had in his uh, dashboard and different things and showing me all these knives and and um, telling me that if I didn't return, that kind of that would be my fate. I was terrified, and I was finally you know, uh, able to get to my grandmother's. I ran out of the car as fast as I could and into the safety of her home. I, I didn't end up telling my grandma what happened because I was filled with a lot of shame, a lot of, um, guilt and, and fear because I, I just felt like I had brought it on because I had run away. And my, my fears were kind of confirmed a few days later when I had to return to the day, to the group home. I shared with a, a worker there what had happened, and she brushed me off and, and basically said, well, then you shouldn't have run away. And so I just kind of kept it inside and I buried it for, from that point on. And they ended up really spiraling, spiraling down and getting involved with like some criminal activity, um, like um, you know, um, some stealing and things like that and ended up in a youth center. And by the time I was 18, I was a single, I was a single parent. And then by the time I was 24, I was a single mom of three kids. And I just, uh, you know, wanted better and started turning my life around. And I eventually got into journalism and revisited what had happened to me um, now about, it's been about, about five or six years when I started talking about it publicly for the first time. And um, I've been on that healing journey ever since.
1: Wow. That's such an amazing story. And you are so strong for sharing that with us. Canada has staggering violence rates against Indigenous females. They're 12 times more likely to go missing or be killed than other groups. Um, do you have any sort of, you know, theory as to why Indigenous females are so, so vulnerable in Canada?
2: Like I said, um, we have um, displaced Indigenous people here uh, all over Canada, people that are living under oppression um, from uh, you know, the Canadian government under oppressive uh, Indian Act, which basically dictates uh, all the ins and and outs of First Nations here in this country. Um, Our people, like I said, are reeling with uh, struggling with intergenerational trauma, with um, very little um resources or abilities to heal although we are on an incredible healing journey now so um like for me like uh, over 50% of missing and murdered indigenous women here have been in the foster care system so for me i always think that i think man i was so close that could have been me and yet this country uses and gets rich off the resources of Indian land here on this country. So it's very, very ironic. It's this, um, it's this, uh, uh, really unbalanced, um, um, power, um, uh, um, not struggle, but you know, there, there's just so much oppression. There's so much discrimination and racism, you know, that goes on, um, and I think, um, like I said, like I was saying before, um, with our our people not being valued, um, uh, the police not um, taking seriously or investigating uh, these cases. And I found out recently, um, I hosted or I moderated a, a panel on um, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and the media with journalists for human rights. And I learned that less than 2% of media coverage in Canada for the last five years. And I mean, we just had this huge national uh, inquiry into this crisis released in the last few years. Less than 2% of media coverage has been about this crisis.
1: That is so interesting to hear, especially because in the United States, I feel like I at least look at Canada as some sort of historical like heaven. So you had gone back and you had talked about the national inquiry. So I know that Canada in 2019 declared this a genocide um, on the topic of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. But on the legislative side, what has been done? Prime Minister
2: Justin Trudeau's uh, government and Justin Trudeau himself promised at a ceremony at the release of this uh, National Inquiry final report that he and his government would do whatever it takes to implement um, the calls for justice um, in out of this report. And they promised that they would um, have a national action plan by, you know, June of 2020, which would be a year later. Just before that uh, deadline, it was announced that that wasn't going to happen, that the government um, you know, um, had a number of delays due to COVID-19 and such, and that it was postponed indefinitely. So here we are a year and a half after, and we still don't have a national action plan. So if, if the government is putting this off and not taking this seriously, that really, really sends a message to everybody else involved, that this isn't a high priority for them.
1: For like people who are located where I am or other non-Indigenous individuals who are living in Canada, what can we do um, to be an ally to the Indigenous community despite COVID-19? Hmm.
2: Yes. So I would do what you're doing, Caitlin. <laughs> you're actually genuinely, authentically Uh, interested and concerned. I would talk about it amongst your friends. Research, get to know us and our people, get to know who we are, because again, you're putting a face to us. And when you put that face to us, it's so much harder to um, ignore the suffering or hardships. I would you know, if, if you're able here in Canada or in the U.S. to um, solicit and write um, and advocate for uh, governments to take action and for legislation to be brought in to address this crisis, let them know that this is unacceptable. We live in these countries that are supposed to be among the greatest in the world and upholding high human rights standards and this just does not equal. This is not equal that. And if you're a citizen, and if you um, claim to uh, believe in those type of freedoms and human rights um, for everybody, I encourage you to do something about it. You can write. You can, um, you know, uh, research. You can, you know, talk amongst your friends and just spread the word. And just if you're if you're doing it authentically. If you're doing it with passion and purpose, then I believe that that is going to be most effective.
1: Geographically, Canada is famous for the notorious Highway of Tears, um, otherwise known as Highway 16. Um, this highway is dubbed as beautiful a road as did Deadly. Um, if you know, could you just talk a little bit about the Highway of Tears history and why it has been dubbed this?
2: So I happen to be going there in a couple of weeks. I'm doing a big major series for Al Jazeera English. Um, and I have driven the highway. I've been there. I've met with families who have lost loved ones. So it is a, a stretch of almost 800 kilometers, which I don't know how much that would be in malls, but we use kilometers here in Canada um, from, um, it's a, an industrial road. It's a main um, highway. It's called the Yellowwood Highway. It stretches from Pacific North coast all the way, I believe to past Prince George. And um, um, since I believe the 1970s, early 1970s, there's been um dozens and dozens of uh, women and girls that have uh, gone missing along that highway or have been murdered. Um, The majority of them have been Indigenous women and girls. It's still ongoing. It hasn't stopped. The last that I know of, the last young woman that um, was um, murdered in the vicinity, which was just a few kilometers off the highway, um, was um, an 18-year-old, young girl named Jessica Patrick. So this is kind of like, this has been ongoing um, for decades and there are killers on the loose. There have been a couple of um, men that have, um, you know, been caught and, and, and are serving time um, for some of the killings. But um, I, from what I, uh, from what the families have told me, and other research I've done, it's, um, a problem because it's, it's an industrial like corridor. And so there are a lot of like outsiders moving, um, in and out of the area, uh, traveling this highway. Um, and there's a lot of remote rural indigenous communities. And a lot of the women are out and about on the road. Some of them hitchhike because there's lack of, um, you know, transportation and, and things like that. Um, which is um why you know this is occurring there i I don't know um all the reasons why this specific stretch is, but the factors is that it's royal it's rural remote, that it's an industrial corridor um and and also many families there have told me the police do not investigate the murders. Properly, They are not taken seriously.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was going to follow that up by asking about if it's a lack of police presence, but the Royal Canadian Mounted Police counted 1,200 cases over the past three decades. But actually, that's just drastically under <laughs> than what the real number could be. Um, the Native Women's Association of Canada suggests that it could be higher than 4,000. Do you believe that these predators along the Highway of Tears and Across the board, believe that the precedent of stolen land may excuse stolen Indigenous women.
2: Absolutely, I think that goes hand in hand. Um, you know, historically, uh, our women, um, our a lot of our women, um, like we had matriarchal societies, and our women held a lot of respect and power in our communities. And when colonialism took over here um you know that respect was completely um desecrated against our women and when that when the lands were taken away as well it yes absolutely it goes hand in hand with that violence i i have a friend and uh, she's in an advocate and activist for the environment. She's from here in Alberta. Her name is Melina Labucan Massimo. She uh, coined the term that violence against the land begins violence against Indigenous women because we view the earth as a mother figure. And our mother is being harmed and um, disrespected and desecrated, then our women are easily harmed, disrespected, and desecrated.
0: If you or a loved one are in need of help, you can call the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center at 1-844-7-NATIVE in the U.S., or 604-687-1867 in Canada to speak with a Native advocate for support. Thank you to Caitlin Calfo for her excellent reporting on this important and emotional piece. Caitlin is a sophomore at USC Annenberg studying journalism. We ask every guest the same question to wrap up our interview. If you could go back to your early 20s, what would you tell yourself? Here's Brandy's advice. Just keep going
2: it's worth it. It's worth it to keep fighting for what you believe in. It's worth it to give and fight to inspire through your work.
0: Tune in every Friday for new episodes of Match Volume and be sure to follow us on Instagram at Match Volume. This show is a production of Annenberg Media and is co-produced and co-hosted by Ella Katz and Elle Davidson. For Annenberg Media at the University of Southern California, I'm Ella Katz. And I'm Elle Davidson. See you next week.